I, I just want to say this. Abraham Lincoln. Okay, here's how it is. Abraham Lincoln, savior of the union, destroyer of the public, greatest president ever, and 19th century Twitter troll. That's what he was. Dead bot, dead bot, dead bot history, yeah. Welcome to Dead Bot History Podcast, episode one. Uh, we've somehow ended up on Abraham Lincoln as our topic with uh, the Civil War being the theme. Um, so I'm going to read this quote from the Cooper Union speech of February 27th. 1860, before Abraham Lincoln is candidate uh, for the Republicans, he writes this in his speech, which is his longest speech, just over 7,000 words. Under all these circumstances, do you really feel yourselves justified to break up this government unless such a court decision as yours is shall be at once submitted to as a conclusive and final rule of political action? But you will not abide the election of a Republican president. In that supposed event, you say, you will destroy the Union. And then, you say, the great crime of having destroyed it will be upon us. That is cool. A highwayman holds a pistol to my ear and mutters through his teeth, stand and deliver or I shall kill you. And then you will be a murderer. That's uh, probably my favorite line in there. And the fact that he says, that is cool. I understand in the 1800s. That means something different, like that is cold-hearted, but that is cool. Yeah, I, I read that, and I I thought the exact same thing. I was like, man, he was, in this whole speech, he's just owning Stephen Douglas. And But that particular paragraph where he says that, it reminds me of in our modern-day elections, right? When, like, when whoever wins, so if, if Trump wins... Um, all the Democrats are like, I'm moving to Canada or California is going to secede from the union because we don't like the results of the election. Or democracy is dead. Or yeah, yeah, it's like, no, it's over. We're done for. Or, um, you know, or Texas trying to secede from the union as well. And and like anytime we get an election we don't like, we're like, well, uh, the losing side's like, I'm done. Let's just all throw it out and start over. And it's uh, and, uh, that polarization. If it's this, it's also this. Mm-hmm. If you want to open the economy, you want my grandmother to die. Yeah. If uh, if you want to save my grandmother, it's going to come at the cost of the entire global economy, and everyone will die. Um, yeah, and that's and kind of what he points to. It's totally what he points to, and it's funny. We like to think of people in the 1860s as a little bit more distinguished or reserved, but they're just as petty and dumb as we are. It's not like we've gotten worse. We just have more media to show how stupid we are. Like. The, the whole thing, and, and, and he, prior to this, he's, threat, he's framing how the southern states and the representatives from the southern states are threatening, basically. If we don't get what we want, we will leave the union. And if, and if you don't vote the way we want, it's going to happen. And so Lincoln's saying, look, we can't negotiate with terrorists. We can't <laughs> negotiate with these guys. There, there's, no, there's no reason with them. There's no reasoning with them. There's no meeting them in the middle. They want all or nothing. At one point in the speech, he says, it's not even if, well, yeah, we think slavery is bad and you guys think it's right and we'll just leave each other alone. He goes, even if we tried to do that, we have been doing that and that's still not enough for them. It won't be enough for them until we say, yes, slavery is right. 
Yeah. So I made a note on that paragraph. I think you're talking about where he talks about what's going to convince them. What if we say yes. slavery is not, you know, we have to stop calling it wrong. We have to. And I basically said, this is, uh, he's, he's saying, unless we completely change our language on slavery, they won't be convinced. We're not going to convince mm-hmm. these Southerners that, um, that, that we're not going to take out slavery. We can't convince them. Mm-hmm. And he does say in there, listen, we're not, this is, I think, where he lays out his platform of, we're not here to get rid of slavery. The Republican idea is to uh, not maintain the status quo, but to prevent the spread. Yep. And he kind of leaves it at that. And I think that's where he lays down the Republican idea of, we're not going to continue and spread this thing that we don't like. Uh, but yep. we're also not going to destroy it outright yeah and he said uh he quoted jefferson saying basically that emancipation should be left to the states so that over time each state should decide to emancipate their slaves and and we should have a a confederacy of free men at the beginning of this speech he's talking about stephen douglas who those of you that don't know um him and douglas had abraham lincoln and douglas had these famous um debates i think they both ran against each other for the senate in 58 and um and then lincoln defeated douglas in 60 for the presidential nomination or election um and so he he starts his speech by calling out douglas and this is after they had these famous debates and he says in his speech last autumn at columbus ohio as reported in the new york times senator douglas said the liberal new york times just so you know (laughs) senator douglas said our fathers when they framed the government under which law under which we live, understood this question, slavery, just as well and even better than we do now. And so that's Douglas saying that. And so what Lincoln does is he goes, you know what? Stephen Douglas is right. They did understand better than we do now. And they did. And, and, be, and so he accepts the premise of Douglas. He goes, I fully endorse this and adopt it as text for this discourse. I so adopt it because it furnishes a precise and agreed starting point for a discussion which Republicans and the wing of the democracy, headed by Senator Douglas, it simply leaves the inquiry. What was the understanding that those fathers had of the question mentioned? And the question specifically was, does the federal government have a constitutional right or authority to... Um, control slavery in federal territory. And and so then he spends the next three pages kind of breaking out, you know, who are these founding fathers? And he calls them the, the signers of the Constitution, the 39 signatories. And then he goes, and what is the, the framework of the government being the Constitution? And, and then he goes through that and he just keeps citing time after time that after the Constitution was written, where framers were voting on the restriction of slavery, the Northwest Territories, which we now know as the Midwest, um, the Louisiana Purchase, um, what eventually became Missouri and the Missouri Compromise, all these situations. And he, every single time he, he makes a point, he goes back to the line where Stephen Douglas said, these forefathers understand this question just as well, if not better than we do. Basically, and that's why I'm calling him like a troll. Like he's trolling Douglas by saying, you said it. You said the four founding fathers knew this better than we do. And here's what they said on the issue. Yeah. And he's bringing up all the framers uh, original tweets, right? He's like, here's exactly. what they did. Here's how they did it. Uh, here's what they voted on in this circumstance or this circumstance or this circumstance. And in this case, a majority of the framers voted this way. And in every case, 
<clears throat> it comes out that 21 of the 39, 36 framers uh, consistently voted against any spread of slavery, which is, again, the question, not to uh, abolish slavery completely or adopt it completely, but do we contain the spread of slavery, uh, especially when it yeah. comes to federal territories, not states? And then it gets into all the question of, you know, what is um, what is a state? And I, well, he actually gets into that uh, in his other speech that we we're going to look at. Yep. Um, but And in this speech, he kind of lays the, the case in the first half saying, yes, the U.S. government does have the right to restrict slavery in its territories. And the reason in certain times that they didn't that they didn't ban slavery was because either the territory that they acquired already had slavery, and to prohibit it would have been, I don't know, if a change in difficult the law. or pragmatic. It would have been it would have been hard to re- reverse that. But they could say any new territory that didn't already have slavery could not. They could restrict the slavery, uh, the expansion of slavery to those new territories, which is why the Midwest like Wisconsin, Michigan, part of Minnesota, Ohio, Illinois, Indiana, all were free states. And then Louisiana, which was purchased from the French, well, Louisiana was already, a, a, they already had slaves in Louisiana when they purchased it from the French, so they kept it as such. But when they bought the rest of the Northwest Territory, the Pacific Northwest Territory from the purchase, I believe that all remained free because there were no slaves at the time. Um so it's just interesting how he frames it. He sets up this long discussion using Douglas's words to kind of defeat Douglas's own argument. And then to the quote that you had um, at the very beginning, kind of setting it up saying, look, you can change some action, but you can't change your behavior. And even if you got rid of the Republican Party, he says later, it wouldn't change the momentum that's happening and it wouldn't change the sentiment of the people. Yeah, and that's a big... I guess question is, so Lincoln's presidency, um, you know, how necessary was it to do certain things? And when we look at it in the context of slavery, which was a massive violation of rights, um, what other rights were willing to sacrifice, even temporarily or even permanently, to remove that? Uh, And understanding that a good chunk of the population maybe didn't agree that that was a right that needed to be extended. Um, There's another quote in here that kind of goes along with what um, I read before, and it was, um, he says, your purpose then plainly stated is that you will destroy the government unless you be allowed to construe and enforce the Constitution as you please. On all points in dispute between you and us, you will rule or ruin in all events. Mm -hmm. And it's that all or nothing mentality that he's he's pointing to, understanding that... um, when we look, if we look at Lincoln in the context of slavery and the slave debate, slavery debate, uh, he would be considered, I almost would say, a moderate, and that he's like, slavery can continue where it exists currently, mm-hmm. and where it doesn't, it won't, <clears throat> and that is uh, not as extreme as many abolitionists and people who oppose slavery would want him to be, but it's far too radical for the people in states that allow slavery. Um, knowing that their economy would be disrupted greatly by that. Yeah, and it's funny that Jefferson quote, I, I go back to because he said, the eventual goal is that states um, abolish slavery individually and so that, they, that it's a, 
they can like the evil will be insensibly removed until all those slaves are replaced by free white labor um mm-hmm. and this this whole idea that as and and a bunch of states had emancipated on their own they didn't need the federal government to do it and that's what most of the northern states did but that was that was in jefferson's mind and and to another extent lincoln's mind is that over time each state will realize how bad slavery is and they will abolish it on their own without any prompting or force by the government. Um, and uh, yeah, it's just a, I don't know, it's just wild how, like you said, with they'll destroy the government if they don't, it'll, they'll rule or ruin everything. And it's just so funny to me because I think, like I said, with modern elections, like, when Bush run all, when when Bush won in two thousand and two thousand and four, especially in two thousand because he didn't win the popular vote, and all, a bunch of Democrats were like, "Well, I'm moving to Canada, or we're going to secede from the union." And it's like, and then none did. When Obama won in two thousand eight, and everybody in Texas is like, "Well, we'll just declare we're a republic again." And it's like, "Yeah, are you though?" Because I don't think I don't think that's going to happen. But it takes a this lot of effort to secede. Yeah. Say this about the South. They they followed through. I mean, they didn't just threaten it. They did it. And but so I mean, I, here we are, you know, coming cleaning back up 160 years later. To his speech, he's talking about them saying, hey, we're going to roll this whole thing over. We're going to secede. Yeah. I don't, and, and again, um, just full disclosure, we're not like Abraham Lincoln experts. Civil War was never my area of expertise. Um, but, you know, as I look more into this, the first secessions happened at the end of 1860 after the election, and then they continued up until and past the inauguration in April of 1861. So he's calling this out a year before these secessions even happen, before he's elected. So uh, he's got this foresight to say, uh, this is what they're threatening. So that, that must have obviously been part of discussion. Um, mm-hmm. But then we go into, you know, he's elected in 1860. He wins that, that election. Uh, other states secede. And then in April, when all those states have seceded and he's being inaugurated, um, then we get into the Civil War. And that's where uh, Confederate um, soldiers uh, fire on and take Fort Sumter in, uh, what is it, South or North Carolina. Um, You know, they take Fort Sumter. Nobody is killed until after the battle when a munition box explodes and kills a Union soldier because they've surrendered. Um, <clears throat> and then there's a series of battles. We kind of saw some of those um, between then and July 4th, 1861, which is the other speech we're going to look at where he's in front of Congress for a special session. And again, uh, I wish that our presidents had the brevity of Lincoln. Um, his longest speech is 7,000 words. This one, again, it's longer than the Gettysburg Address, but you can read it in about five minutes. And he's talking to Congress about all this. And, and when we have those two ideas of Lincoln, uh, savior of the union and destroyer of the republic you know he talks a lot about the constitution in that first speech and in the special session he's also talking a lot about the constitution which I actually appreciate a president looking to the constitution even if in the end Lincoln does kind of trample all over it in order to do something and I'm not saying what he did was poor or bad. I mean, saving the union matters. And he talks about it in his speech, but, um, it became necessary in some respects for him to kind of step on the constitution in a number of ways in order to 
get the means. And he even mentions it in this speech. Um, you know, he says towards the end, um, but if a state may lawfully go out of the union, having done so, it may also discard the Republican form of government so that to prevent its going out is an indispensable means to the end of maintain, maintaining the guarantee mentioned. And when an end is lawfully and obligatory, the indispensable means to it are also lawful and obligatory. So what he's saying there is in order to save the Constitution, it may be necessary, whatever the means are to save it, are the appropriate means to save it. Which, while I agree with him in that circumstance, that's some dangerous language for our Constitution. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because then anybody can use that to, with with ill intention, can use that to justify their actions. Well, I'm doing it to save the Constitution, and and we see that so often with presidents today. Like they'll they'll say, well, this obviously I'm doing this because I'm protecting your liberty. Like that's why I have to or your abridge your liberty to protect your other <clears throat> liberty. And it's like, well, not really. So I I think that's uh, and his special session does something else when he. He talks so much about the states and the states not really being states. And again, that word states um, is synonymous with country or nation. Um, And prior to the Civil War, we have this term where they always say these United States. And afterwards, it's always the United States. And that's a tiny change. But, you know, he talks about the states as if they are not independent of the republic, which or the the federal government, the the nation. Mm -hmm which I would say is an important distinction. But uh, have, have either of you ever been to the Alamo? Mm-mm. Nick, no. you've been to the Alamo, right? Uh, we, I, I think we passed through there, right? You and I, it's the only time I've ever been in that area. We were in San Antonio on a Greyhound bus, Eric. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> it was really a memorable time, uh, I can tell. Right okay, well, style. so yeah, we didn't visit. We didn't visit the Alamo. Did we go like downtown? We just hung out at the airport. Did, did you guys just get pissed off at the Spurs? Is that what happened? We were already yeah. We were railing about the Spurs. Okay. No, no. We got into we got into San Antonio at like four a.m. and then went directly to the airport. So if you uh, back to the point, the Alamo. Um, if you ever go to the Alamo um, in their main hall, they have a flag uh, from from each state or country from which a fighter at the Alamo came from. So there's a German flag. There's an Irish flag. There's a British flag. There's a Scottish flag. There's like a flag of Georgia and a flag from New York and a flag from various states. And then there's a, there's a streamer ribbon for each. So so there's four guys from New York who fought at the Alamo. So there's four streamers on the flag of New York. So the idea here that Lincoln says these states all proceed from the nation um, is something that even during the Civil War we see is kind of not true. People identify themselves as the state they're from. That's why, uh, you know, uh, Robert E. Lee is going to say, no, I fight for Virginia because he's a Virginian, not an American in his mind. And so, you know, at the Alamo, you can see that it's very tangible to see uh, these people consider themselves an Alabaman or a Georgian or a North Carolinian or a Virginian, and they've come to Texas to fight, or a Texan, because some were already living in Texas, or a German or an Irish, and they're fighting for their independence in Texas. So 
But and, and I think the the point that Lincoln was making is at the even at the very inception of the United States when they declared independence from England, they did it. And if correct me if I'm wrong, they had to be unanimous in that vote to to declare independence on July fourth. The thirteen colonies did, and I think. So to him, he's like, no, even when we started, even though we were 13 colonies, we made a unanimous decision as a nation. And so the states stopped being independent of one another. And and after the Articles of Confederation and the Constitution, that became even more pronounced. Um, and then at any state that joined the Union later was always... Um, so like the North... like uh, the territories that became the Midwest, Wisconsin, Michigan, Illinois, and them. Um, they are already a part of the United States territory, so they're already part of that that one. Or they and, were taken then, from a current state and broken yeah. off. But yeah, the colonies yeah. were, uh, they declared their independence like, not as 13 colonies, but as one nation. Yeah. And so he was making the point that, yes, they were 13 colonies, and we've added states and territory since then, but it's always been under the understanding that you are, you, you're not your own nation that's joined. It, I, I think the comparison would be the European Union, where you have right. a collection of 20 to 30 nations and they can work together, but they can also just leave. But they, and they also I, joined I, of their own volition. Yeah. As Germany existed and Germany said, well, we're going to join. Yeah. Whereas Spain sold Florida to the United States or France sold the Louisiana purchase to the United States. And you can say the natives, none of them agreed with any of these sales and purchases. And that's totally yeah. true. But, um, for the, for the purpose of this argument, he was saying, look, you were never your own nations. And he goes, and the only exception maybe is Texas. But even then when Texas joined, they had to basically give up this idea that they were a separate country or a separate state joining in a in a coalition, and, and they were joining a union. Yeah, and, 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 and that's the point he makes in that that speech to the Congress. He even is, says, you know, if even if the state has in its own constitution, hey, you can secede, you know, it's null and void. Like it doesn't matter. the The state's constitutions are all going to fall um, under the law of the land, which is the national the constitution. State's constitution. Yeah. So. But yeah, I'd say these speeches, you know, the Gettysburg Address is great for like fifth graders to memorize and recite, and it's powerful uh, for the for the event that occurred. But when looking at a platform and looking at um, this is what republicanism is, even mm -hmm. if it was at his time, we don't even need to tie it to Republicans today. Um, there's one line in his first speech um, that that really sums it up. And maybe it's, um, gosh, where, where, did, where was that? Because it was probably the best line um, that kind of set aside what, um, you know, what was the difference between Republicans and others? Uh, we'll he, cut this in post, right, Nick? Sure. Me and Eric <laughs> shuffling through a bunch of papers. <laughs> Um, Some you know, of it's interesting, but most of it's not. <laughs> you know, he talks about the rebellion being sugar-coated and they're drugging the public. Like some of his language there about, you know, how these people are being duped into seceding. That's really interesting. But here I found it. 
He said this, he says, um, this is essentially a people's contest. On the side of the union, it is a struggle for maintaining in the world that form and substance of government whose leading object is to elevate the condition of men and women, to lift artificial weights from all shoulders, to clear the paths of laudable pursuit for all, to afford all an unfettered start and a fair chance in the race of life, yielding to partial and temporary departures from necessity. This is the leading object of the government for whose existence we contend. Like that is, that is a classical liberal argument for the, the point of government. It's there to remove obstacles for people to be their best selves. Um, and he says, you know, he does have that one caveat, yielding to partial and temporary departures from necessity. Mm-hmm. That's the goal of government. That's the goal um, of a union like this. It's to remove all the burdens that people have so that they can do, you know, per, uh, you know, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Yeah. And, and, and you say that, and it's so funny, is I think... A good example is toll roads, right? When when a state needs to build new roads and they say, well, we're going to put a toll in so we can pay for the road. And when the road's paid off, we'll remove the tolls. When's the last time a toll has ever been removed after the road has been paid off, right? Well, when's a law ever same, been removed? Exactly. That's the same thing. And I think Lincoln is saying, look, in certain cases, we will need to abridge your rights or whatever it is, but that should only be temporary and only for the purpose of preserving something greater in the case of the constitution or the union. Um, but now it's so rare that you see, um, any sort of law like the Patriot Act, you know, remember that was instituted after the tax in 2001. Well, that's still there and it's still abridging your right to privacy and your right to property. And, and, um, and it's gotten worse since then, but we were told we needed it for safety and it's probably never going to go away. Um, but then it taken a little departure looking at some of these lines, especially in the Cooper speech, he's, you can actually like see Lincoln, like the personality in the man and not just like the stoic picture on the $5 bill. Like you can, you can see him come alive. Like he goes, he goes, I defy any man to show that any one of them ever in his whole life declared that in his understanding, any proper division of local from federal authority or any part of the Constitution forbade the federal government to control as to slavery and in the federal territories. And then later on, a couple paragraphs later, he goes, shifts his speech and he goes, and now if they would listen, as I suppose they will not, I would address a few words to the Southern people. Like he just gets into it. And it's like, we have this like austere picture of Lincoln where he's just so, always so serious and he's always like so controlled and like, cause you don't, we don't see him, but you can see in his words, like this was a fiery guy. And this was a guy that like, kind of liked to get into it and basically say, okay, give me your best shot. Let's see what you got. If you think you're so right. When we look and, at uh, Lincoln, he is, uh, we look at his upbringing. He is that kind of up by his bootstraps, failed multiple times, failed Senate elections, failed at business um, <clears throat> from the backwoods of Illinois, you know, started business on his own. Um, he is not a politician from political roots. 
Yeah. He hasn't even been politically... Yeah, he's not a blue blood. He's not upper crust. Right. He's... He hasn't been politically successful even. So I guess part of me is like, what would it be like to witness any of his speeches? Because, um, I, you know, we always get that yeah, reserved kind of, you know, this is, he was reserved and quiet. It's like, I can't imagine when talking to 1,500 people without a microphone about something like this, that he's going to be reserved. Mm-hmm. Because these are things that he's passionate about. This was his platform, which was the union stays whole. And but here's what we here's what we stand on slavery, and it matters. And he's taking a constitutional look at it, and it's it's a. Uh, I can't imagine him doing so in a reserved, stoic mm-hmm. manner. Um, well, and he must have been amazing because, at this point, when he gives this speech, he's not a candidate for president. And Seward is, and then the Republican Party after the speech it goes. You know what? We're gonna we're gonna change tack a little bit, and we're gonna go with this guy, and and that's how conventions were back then. Is is you could go into a convention supporting one guy, and then you ended up the nominee yourself. Like that's it was a totally different monster um, back then. There's no Super and Tuesday. It, yeah, CNN and Fox News weren't broadcasting the votes as they came in. Uh, I mean, even this speech, it wasn't recorded outside of the written record. And so people having the the ability to sit down and read something all the way through and understand it and take from it the words themselves rather than just passion. So even if he wasn't passionate, you read these words, you're like, no, that's that's the platform. That's the idea that I can get on board with rather than just like, oh, I can get behind, you know, build the wall. Okay, three words. I can remember that. Um, Mm -hmm. No, they could get on board with this platform. Um, so it's kind of interesting seeing these documents, um, or speeches I had never looked at, didn't really know about. Um, and I, I think it was enlightening. It gave me a whole new appreciation for Lincoln and and kind of who he was as a man. I, I do think it's interesting today, especially in this particular crisis, when you sent these and said these are kind of timely, you know, how at one time he goes... Um, because you guys consider yourselves reasonable and just people um, yet um, still when you speak of us Republicans you do not only denounce us as reptiles or at the best <laughs> no better than outlaws you will grant a hearing to pirates or murderers but nothing like it to black Republicans and I, he, the way he said that and it's like this is like when I'm on Twitter and I'm trying to argue about the reason we should wear masks for COVID-19 and someone calls me a socialist because I disagree with them. It's like like they use it like, oh, that black Republican or like in, in the Red Scare of the 50s. Everybody's a commie. If you disagree with anything, the party line says you must be a commie. And, and Democrats in the South at this time were using this to when they were being primaried by other Democrats, they go, Oh, well, he's not a true Democrat. He's a black Republican. Like that was the branding that you had. And just like, you know, Republicans today say anybody that doesn't support Donald Trump is obviously a socialist. And anybody that doesn't support, I guess the most liberal candidate is just a, just a someone pit. sucking on the corporate teat or something like that. They're just a, like, it's, it's crazy how, eerily similar it is to today like the way people get labeled and sectioned and if you are this then you must be that and it was just mind-boggling like i could totally see if twitter existed in the 1850s and 60s it would be just as toxic as today 
Yeah, I mean, it, it's the same issues. And so, you know, people, oh, we've never been this polarized. No, no, I think we were a bit more polarized in 1860 than we are now. Um, yeah. And it was on an issue that affected so many people on an individual level, economically, or I guess you could say spiritually. You see a, something happening that is a moral wrong that is ongoing and upheld within the nation. Uh, that's going to that's gonna drive a wedge between people. And uh, mm-hmm. I don't think, outside of saying whatever you think about Donald Trump, uh, I don't think we've ever seen anything like slavery. I, I, I can't imagine there's something that, that could drive a wedge uh, between people in this country, much like slavery. Well, it's, and it did it sexually. It was easier because it was those Virginians, it was those South Carolinians, yeah. and those New Yorkers and those Yanks. Um, but... You well, know, it's something we're still that you disagree with. We're now. still dealing with the fallout of that. Like, you know, there is no, like you said, there's nothing that's ever been like slavery in, in the United States. And God, I hope there's nothing ever like it again, um, because it's been 165 years and we're still dealing with the fallout of the Civil War. Um, which, which brings up the other question. And oh, man, so that brings up a great question about Lincoln, but um, which is this: Lincoln doesn't get assassinated. Lincoln survives. Mm-hmm. Is Lincoln, because uh, he's got a full term ahead of him. I don't think that's accurate historically. <laughs> no. So let's. No, he made it, Nick. Oh, got it. Him and, El- him and Elvis. He became yeah. like a vampire. You guys are the experts. I mean. So, no, I, I, I said we're not. We're not the experts. We're pretty amateur. I've, at this. Read, I've read two articles. I feel pretty well versed now. So. Um, if he survives and he does, does not become assassinated, and he has got a full term ahead of him, rather than uh, Andrew Jackson, right? Who came after him? Johnson. Johnson. Uh, <clears throat> and you have all the the backbiting, and you've got the the radical Republicans. Now you have Lincoln still at the head. Is he able to mend the wounds of the Union in a way that prevents the, this 150 year struggle to get out of the wreckage of the Civil War? I don't know if he prevents it. And honestly, I think I think if he had stayed alive, the Reconstruction would have been more complete. Um, but no, I, I think the wounds were always going to be long and they were always going to be deep. Um, you don't just get over that. I think that's why, honestly, I think that's why he and Jefferson and, and those like them, they're like, we want states to emancipate individually because... And I can't find it in here because Jefferson said, if you were to force it to continue, if it were to force itself to continue slavery, we couldn't imagine the the cost or how bad it would be. But to force the states not to have slavery, which while I think was a good thing, and obviously the end of slavery was a good thing, I think Lincoln and, and, and those like him were saying, no, Virginia, no. Georgia, you need to emancipate your slaves on your own volition because that will be better for the country and it will be better for those now freed slaves as a whole if you choose to do this instead of being forced to. Um, You won't have the Jim Crow laws. You won't have the rise of the KKK because your people, the people of Georgia decided, no, what we're doing is wrong and we need to stop it Um, or or whatever slaveholding state. at the time. And I, I think, I do think if Lincoln had survived, it would have been 
a better reconstruction, but I think it still would have been. You still have a war behind you. Yeah. And that you'd still be dealing with this. So here's the last line that I loved. You mentioned it in that text the other night uh, before I had read this. Um, The ballots are the rightful and peaceful successors of bullets. And that when ballots have fairly and constitutionally decided there can be no successful appeal back to bullets, that there can be no successful appeal except to ballots themselves at succeeding elections. Such will be a great lesson of peace. Teaching men that what they cannot take by an election, neither can they take it by a war. Teaching all folly of being the beginners of a war. Mm-hmm. The ballots being the successor to bullets. Um, that's yeah, a really cool that line. Was, that was a really good... <laughs> Was and that was the special session. Yeah, yeah, he's talking yeah. to. to yeah, that was a great line. It was, uh, it's something that you can kind of hold on to and say, "Look, we as a society or people, we are better than this, and we need to, even when we don't like the results of a, of a fair election, we need to accept them because it's better than the consequence." And I think in that speech, he also says, "Right makes might." Yeah, where so does. many people like to say might makes right. He says no, right makes might. Like right is what matters. It doesn't matter, and it makes you how strong. strong. You are, yeah. It doesn't matter how strong you are physically. That doesn't make you right. But being right, that will give us a strength as a nation. Yeah, and to put this speech, this was July fourth, eighteen sixty-one. So you had the Battle of Fort Sumter. You had a series mm-hmm. of small battles, and when I say small, I think the largest one had a thousand men in it. We're talking like casualties in the ten to twenties killed maybe 50 wounded all these little skirmishes um so this is effectively his december 7th speech um mm-hmm. by fdr you know it's yeah we're, we're at war they attacked us they had the first volley at fort sumter we've had a few altercations since then uh, this is what's necessary um to make this right and we're gonna have to you know they seceded we have to go get them back um mm-hmm. And, that's, and, it, it, and I think a lot of people forget this is still a precarious time for the United States. They're not even a century old. And I think in the same year, 1861, Britain says, yeah, the Confederate States are a legitimate nation. Well, so, you know, I looked into that. It's the, uh, the Neutrality Proclamation of 1861. Yeah. Basically what they said, that was in May of 1861. So that's between Fort Sumter. It's between Fort Sumter and this speech. And what they said is recognizing that there is a conflict of arms we are going to stay neutral and and what they did they didn't recognize the confederacy as a legitimate nation but as a legitimate belligerent which it, oh, it, it's yeah. different but it, it says listen we understand that that's a group of people who are fighting against this other one we're not recognizing them as a nation but we're also not going to take the side of the one that that we consider a legitimate nation because the british also knew that they had something to benefit if this war breaks these nations apart successfully um that they they, do have a cotton connection um which actually the confederacy found out later was not uh the british didn't need their cotton they weren't willing to run the blockade to get the cotton wasn't that important to them so yeah lincoln yeah good stuff yeah um all right. Yeah, well, let's move on. We'll let's... be back after these commercials from Turkey Jerky. <laughs> uh, I made my own jerky last week. Did you? Yeah. 
Was it good? Oh, it's excellent. I've been making it for a few months now. But the meat oh, price yeah? went up. It was like six ninety nine a pound for this jerky meat. And I went back last week. It was $10 a pound. And I'm like, come on. So now I think i got to get a food slicer and just go buy some top round or bottom round and slice it myself. And okay. Dehydrate it. So, yeah, I'll sell my jerky. I'll, I'll sponsor it. <laughs> uh, all right. So what's going on in the lives of these dads and teaching and stuff? What's, what's going on there? That's not in my notes, Nick. Um, <laughs> going off. I don't have a life. I mean, it's got these three yeah. in there. They're wild. Uh, I got the one just jumping off tables, and he's the smallest. The other one's teaching me how to do about it. animals? I, my children. The new viewer. So, so Marcus, my son, he uh, that kid does not stop moving from the moment he wakes up until I swear to God, nine forty-six p.m. at night. Like he is just constant motion. But um, I mean, they're they're doing good. They're doing about as well as I guess you could expect in a two and a half month lockdown. Um, but it's wearing on me. But it's definitely wearing on my wife a whole lot more than me. So, um, but they're they're doing good. What's going on with yours, Eric? What uh, I think I hear one screaming in the background right now. That might be mine. Yeah, I don't hear any of mine. No, sh- yeah, that's Marcus. Oh, I took him upstairs. Just get him out of the hair. Uh, no, they're just out of my hair. Uh, I, you know, we've got to do like the school stuff, right? So <clears throat> we're both teaching. We're both managing hours in the morning where we're available to students and we're, we're working on, you know, school stuff. And we're trying to set ourselves aside. And the other one's got the three. Um, we're trying to work through... You know, third grade homework, which our third grader, she's she, she's pretty self-sufficient. Our kindergartner, he's, it's uh, it's like pulling teeth every morning. But then there's the days that are great for him, and it's great. And then, then we have a two-year-and-a-half-year-old running around trying to distract everyone. So, you know, about five o'clock, we wind down, and everyone just falls asleep in the living room. Yeah. I need a more specific story. I don't have any more specific stories. <laughs> have anything interesting? Like your so, I bought I bought my two older one ones and... bows, like archery, and uh, speaker. <laughs> no, and so uh, we we were doing some archery early on in the pandemic in the backyard, getting the kids ready for the survival skills. Yep, yep, good. And uh, if a large white squarish animal walked up to them they would miss it completely like like a really fat sheep yeah with a target on the side they'd miss it um <laughs> and they've got no poundage behind the bow it bounce off the fur or the the wool so uh, it's not you know and then it's like the other day we have this big box of legos just you know huge and i love legos and i've tried to it's just a big box of all the lego sets just broken up and so the two and a half year old Liam, he just goes in there and just starts throwing Legos. And so there's like Legos everywhere. We just get the broom and sweep them up. I'm just like, all right, Legos in here, everything else in here. That's just every time I look at that box and I see him open the lids, I'm like, here we go again. Yeah. Um, nothing. What nothing. has Marcus broken in your home? What hasn't he broken? We've got these little, this little like, uh, 
beadboard that goes around our, our baseboards that was attached to this house that we moved into. And all this, it's not attached well, which is part of the problem. And all he does is he just goes around picking it up and he starts swinging it around and it's got these like little tacks in it. So pretty much anything that can be a weapon is what he's going for right now. And uh, yeah, he's, you guys yeah, need he's, to switch. Like he needs to be doing the archery. Mm. He's more hand to hand. He he doesn't believe in in distance attacks. I mean, what, he likes to get what up. Class is up he? Close. What, what class is he? Oh, he's a warrior. Okay, good. Yeah, yeah. He's more into knife fighting. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so he's doing good. I mean, and, and Langston's doing good. Her school years. I think this is the last week of school at home, basically. Yeah, this is our last um, week of of new material. Next week, as yeah. far as teachers' perspective, this is the last week of new material. Last week of instruction. Next week is if we can do assessments and stuff, and and you know stuff can be turned back into us. But it's the last week of assigning new things. Um, but it's just so weird that the whole thing is just weird. Um, yeah. Because you know, I I don't get the same feeling of, and Jake, you remember that of like the last couple weeks of school is just a little mm-hmm. bit of bounce and excitement that you know there's the wear and tear that's usually in april but in may everyone just like feels it yep. and then you get to the last week and then you get to the actual last week that's like a half week or whatever and, and just everyone's all buzzed up and excited <clears throat> and i i'm looking forward to being at You're a hugging kids point. that were the worst kids all year yeah but like, i'm looking forward happy. to being complete and done with this this school year as I am with every year, but there's none of the excitement and fun that goes with it. It's, it's very, um, it's just very different and, uh, weird. I, I really don't, it's the whole distancing was, was, um, difficult. It was good because we learned and we grew, we learned to work with new technology and, and try new things. Um, and some students took to it. Other students really struggled. Um, so it's, it was just a very different um, perspective on education. Are you waiting? Um, you ready for sports to come back? Which sport? Professional? Yeah, let's yeah. jump to professional sports. So, yes. This is all over the place. <laughs> You'll fix it in post, Nick. <laughs> I don't know I'll why. say to me. <laughs> <laughs> Fix it, folks. I listen. Talent's low. I can't fix that, guys. Um, yeah. No. So uh, sports. Um, you know, MLB. I think uh, the baseball's got baseball's got a eighty-two game schedule plan. They've got a plan for the summer, but it looks it's MLB owners, NBA owners, and they haven't really talked to the players yet. So they the owners have a plan. Players don't know if they're involved. The in. NBA had a call with players on Friday. Yeah, but he was asking and answering questions. Um, I, There's a lot of optimism, I've heard. A lot of optimism. Listen, I know MLB is looking at July 4th weekend to start. I don't know when NBA is. If NBA starts on Father's Day and just is playing games from 8 a.m. till 10 p.m., that's going to be the greatest gift to every father in this country. But uh, Korean baseball, they've started back up. And ESPN's are in their games. I haven't watched any. But listen, if baseball is back first, I'm, I'm going to be hooked. And I'm not a baseball guy. 
So if I agree, if, I think whatever big sport comes back first is going to dominate the market that I don't have to pay for because I didn't watch UFC. Yep. But I, I heard a little bit about that UFC fight last weekend. I heard it was a success. Yeah, it, they thought it was one guy tested positive, so they sent him away. Um, but they had the octagon; they had it in an arena, but the arena was empty. Um, and and I guess the uh, some of the fighters were saying. You know, Joe Rogan is one of the commentators, and there's a couple other guys who are commentating. The fighters could hear the, what the commentators were saying, and they adjusted their <laughs> fighting based on they heard a commentator say, well, he should try this. And so the guy did, and it helped him. Because That's awesome. There's no so how does that play out in the NBA? Well, fights are going to have to be – they have to allow more Jeff fights. Jeff Van Gundy. Jeff Van Gundy is on the sideline. Just – Going off about one of the players. So here's a question: If they're going to play those games, it's going to hurt feelings. Is what's going to happen in arenas? <laughs> if they're going to play NBA games in arenas, that's the question: Is are they going to still play the music? Because I hate the music. I know you hate it. Defense. Too, Nick. Defense. God, I hate that. Just that. I do hate it. Or dun 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 dun. It's going to be like an Orlando resort thing, where Ka- they shut like, down Disney World and all the hotels. They create like a bubble. Kind of like lost. Well, they do that for the NBA. Uh, uh, what's the summer? The summer league, right? They're in these smaller spaces. Yeah, yeah, but I mean, obviously, they're still. All you need there. is a court, and a court can fit in a, a hotel conference and room. hotels. Yeah, a hotel conference room can fit a whole court. Yeah, so that's what they're talking about doing is like setting up a bunch of courts, <laughs> where all you need is like some cameras. You just build a bunch of courts, and then you you quarantine all these surrounding hotels, right? So then you only anybody who comes in has to be tested. I think it's going to be cool if you can hear if you can hear the players. They better have like, those sensor buttons you, ready. You can hear the action in the game. Yeah, yeah. No, you definitely have the the dump button. I mean, Nick, but, you remember what it was? I mean, I don't know how much you were on the sideline during those Suns games. I remember have friends of mine had like second row seats behind the visitor's bench and hearing everything you did off Shout the court. Shout out to Trace. Yeah. <laughs> hearing everything you, you heard off the court, it was it was so much more enjoyable to hear the players, hear the coaches. Um, and you even hear the, you know, the sneakers and hitting in the wood or the, you know, just like all that ambient noise. Like it, it almost takes me back to high school, right? You can actually hear the action on the court. And I think at least not permanently, but temporarily, I think that would be a, Kind of a cool aesthetic. That and and any new format they come with. Um, Whether it's a a shorter playoff sets or shorter playoff series, which I I don't think they'll go with. I think they'll stick with seven game series, which bums me out. Here's the thing. The Bucks need to have this because this is the only chance they'll have to win a championship in the next 50 years. They'll have an asterisk, just so you know. I'll take it. (laughs) Your Bucks do need this. He needs yes. as many shots at it as he can get. Although yes. I will say, he might have an even better shot next year when LeBron is a year older. That's true. But you can never – your point is like with the NBA, you can just never tell. You, yeah. Sometimes you only get the one shot. It's easy to look at your team and go, ah, oh, we'll be back the next couple of years. But sometimes that just doesn't happen. Yeah. So I, the Bucks need this. So is it silver? Get, get your act together, silver. Um, but, yeah, we need sports back. Luckily, the NFL has the luxury of not having to come back until August or September. I feel like they don't. Um, the NFL is not really paying attention. They're like, what happened? We had the Super Bowl. Everything's great. We did our draft. 
I know they did. I saw an article but... and they're like, eh, we'll just push it a couple months. <laughs> like, like no biggie. Dead bot, dead bot, dead bot history. Yeah. Hey, pretty good. Yeah.